If you tuned into WHI before, you know that we try to bring new and innovative insights to our audience every other week on some of the big issues impacting healthcare providers. From the front lines on patient-centered care and safety to bigger issues like equity and joy in work, WHI aims to help our listeners make sense of the changing healthcare landscape. That's why we're proud to invite you to join us this December at the IHI National Forum in Orlando, Florida. Whether you're a frontline nurse, a student, a physician, or a patient advocate, the forum is the place to find your crowd and be energized by over 150 workshops, five keynotes, and countless networking opportunities. One way to explore the forum is our forum tracks, a series of specially designed sessions and courses aimed at providing you with the tools and resources to make an impact at your organization. This year's forum tracks include mental health and well-being, equity, improvement science, joy and work, leadership, moving from volume to value, maternal and child health, person-centered care, population health, and safety. I'll be there in my blue shirt, and so will many of the great guests you've heard on WIHI. For more information on the forum, visit IHI.org slash forum. And to dig deeper into the forum tracks, visit IHI.org slash forum tracks. We hope to see you there. Now, here's WIHI. The other day, out of the blue, someone asked me whether quality improvement innovations IHI has developed have been sustainable over the years. Which ones, this person asked me, are still relevant? Funny you should ask, I answered. We've just been wondering the same thing. In fact, to acknowledge the 10-year anniversary of the work of IHI's R&D team, we've just published a nifty update of 10 innovations, some of which were first introduced even longer ago and some of which are relatively new. What innovations from the wider universe would you put on a list of game changers and top propellants for QI? Would you put SBAR there? Would you put checklists? We're eager to know as we embark on a discussion about innovation in 2017. And after all, we're heading into 2018 on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to the program. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And we come to you live bi-weekly. And after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. And I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So it turns out to be a useful exercise to look back and recap why in new tool or a new way of learning or a new provocation and way to mobilize was worth all the iterative testing that went into it. It's also good fodder for discussing what didn't work out and what's missing now. That's all ahead on WIHI once we introduce our panel. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right is the chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the program listening on your computer uh, on streaming audio, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. The number's on the screen right now. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem uh, persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know their number is on the screen right now. 
Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I provided the direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at ihi.org slash WHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at ihi.org and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on the program. Please take, take some time after to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. Thanks, John. So we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway point of the show. We do welcome tweeting at any point. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can involve others in the conversation. So to introductions now, everybody's on the phone. Lindsay Martin is a healthcare improvement and innovation consultant. She's focused on system design. She's also an instructor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, plus faculty and an improvement advisor for IHI, where Lindsay was also the executive director of IHI's innovation process for a number of years. We kind of started at IHI around the same time. Welcome, Lindsay. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Kate Armate is the Chief Innovation and Education Officer for IHI. Oversees the, he oversees the development of innovative new systems designs to implement high-quality, low-cost healthcare, both in the U.S. and in international settings. He's an internal medicine physician, and he's also an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Welcome, Kadar. Hi, Matt. Good to be with you. Thank you. Oh, great. And John Whittington is also on the phone. He is a senior fellow at IHI and lead faculty for IHI's work on helping systems achieve the triple aim. Dr. Whittington has more than 30 years' experience in medicine, population health, and patient safety, and has for years been central to IHI's work on innovation. Welcome, John. Great. Great to be on the call with my friends today. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Great, John. All right, Kadar's going to kick things off for us. And uh, Kadar, as you know, and many of our listeners may know, we've had an R&D team at IHI focused on innovation for about a decade and change. Uh, but there's also been notable work that preceded the creation of the team. So one of the things you're going to do for us today is uh, give us a sense of the scope of this work some of the broad groupings, uh, and then uh, Lindsay will talk to us about this 90-day process and what that's all about. Thanks, Kador. Yeah, thank you, Madge, and thanks for the opportunity to be with you in the WIHI audience. Um, you know, just to start with, I would say that IHI as an organization was really founded on innovation principles uh, as an organization. Uh, one, one sort of axiom or or a mantra, if you will, of innovators everywhere is is the notion of learning across disciplinary boundaries, stretching yourself, uh, finding analogous situations in other industries and other fields, um, and bringing that knowledge to the problem that you're trying to solve that's in front of you. IHI really began, its early history uh, uh, was really oriented around that concept. It began by bringing ideas from other industries, uh, the automotive industry, nuclear, airlines, et cetera, uh, to healthcare. The principles of quality and quality improvement uh, had been really sort of worked out uh, in post-World War II uh, Japan uh, and in trying to stand up that economy uh, and also an industry before that during the Industrial Revolution. And we were trying to uh, import those ideas formally into healthcare 
uh, in, 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 around the mid '80s. Uh, Don Berwick and uh, Bland Godfrey uh, were uh, responsible for a lot of that origin uh, original story. They founded a project called the National Demonstration Project. This is the this is before IHI existed. The National Demonstration Project was really focused on this essential idea of bringing ideas from outside of healthcare, from industry, um, into healthcare. They partnered 20 hospitals with uh, 21 Fortune 500 companies, and they and they sort of uh, the, the, the Fortune 500 companies offered uh, process improvement, knowledge, and coaching. They taught systems how to do those things uh, over the course of about uh, a year, and in that time. As healthcare began applying those concepts and ideas uh, to the work that they were doing, to flow failures, to uh, uh, defects and errors and harms uh, that were being seen in healthcare at the time, they saw dramatic changes in performance. If you'll advance to the next slide, these were some of the results of the National Demonstration Project. Procedure times plummeted 400%, length of stays down by 50%, uh, waiting times down by 70%, infections down by 50%, just remarkable progress in the early application of these methods that were sourced from outside of healthcare um, in the national demonstration effort. Those 21 original hospitals became 44 teams, and then they became 60 teams. And then very soon, in the next slide, we founded uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, with the objective of conveying those ideas and those principles, those innovative ideas and concepts uh, worldwide uh, as we began to tackle the challenge of health and healthcare worldwide. At the highest level, what we do in our innovation process now uh, at IHI is two basic things. We, we have been forever committed to accelerating the achievement of better care and outcomes, uh, and those uh, outcomes often fall in the AAA dimensions, improving the health of populations, uh, improving the care experience, and then trying to reduce the cost of providing those services that we offer. Uh, so that's one category, accelerating the achievement of better care and outcomes. And the other is improving the science of improvement itself. How do we uh, really change the science that we're using in healthcare uh, quality today to improve the methods that we use uh, going forward? And that really is an important differentiator of IHI's uh, research and development program of our innovation uh, thinking and approach uh, as compared to some others. In the former category, we're working, we've worked historically and we currently work on improvements in safety, some of the tools that many health systems use now, uh, trigger tools, uh, care bundles, the whole concept of uh, infection prevention bundles. Uh, those are some of our early innovations uh, to reduce harm. We've now been working on improving equity. All the way through, we've worked on improving efficiency around value and flow. Those are some of the subject matter specific kind of innovation areas that we've worked on over the years. And in the latter category of improving the science itself, well, we've been working for a long time on learning designs. Uh, the open school uh, is one of our most significant innovations uh, over the years. Uh, spread efforts, you know, how do we spread and scale things? Uh, campaigns, the, the famous 100,000 Lives campaign, the concept of a collaborative, the Breakthrough Series collaboratives, those are the kinds of things that help us to advance the science itself, the science of large-scale change in the case of those spread efforts. And then finally, just one last category in improving the science, is this notion of removing accepted system defects. The triple aim, prior to you know, the development of the triple aim within the R&D team, uh, which John, who you'll hear from in a minute, uh, had a lot to do with, uh, prior to that, the, the notion of pursuing cost and, and uh, better outcomes and better care experience together really didn't exist. It, it was viewed as a zero-sum game. 
If you pursued better outcome, that might come at the expe- at, at, at some expense. If you try to cut costs, that might reduce outcome or, or, or create negative effects on care experience. We asked a different question in our research program around what would it take to really change the uh, opportunity there? What would it take to pursue all three of these aims together? That sort of notion of changing the, the starting assumptions uh, is often uh, the kind of thing that we challenge our, our partners with uh, going forward. And our approaches remain consistent over time. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've tried to move from research and development, from the R&D phase of our work, um, through to early stage pilot testing with a handful of partners. We have, uh, we're lucky, we're blessed to have uh, health system partners all over, the, all over the world, really, that work closely with us to help test our new thinking, our new ideas, our new theories of action and change. And then if we develop increasing uh, confidence in the theory that we have, we're able to start to scale that into programs that achieve impact at scale. And all along the way, we try to teach uh, folks uh, what we're learning. Uh, we admit when we are still uh, you know, uh, in the learning mode, and as soon as we start to gain some confidence as our degree of belief in the theory of action and change increases, we teach more and more folks about what we're trying to do. And so that basic uh, axis from research and development, from early stage prototyping and testing, uh, all the way through to large-scale impact has been the way that we've worked uh, all the way through from founding to present um, and remains consistently how we approach innovation challenges today. Thank you, Kedar. And um, the uh, the access, uh, that nice R&D to impact, that'll be a slide that everyone can uh, download and it'll be posted to IHI.org along with everything else tomorrow. And we've got up there uh, the new report that we've put out, um, which was a great opportunity, I think, uh, to look at um, not only what led to the innovation at the time, but how it's holding up uh, in terms of relevance now and what are some of the ongoing challenges. So, Lindsay, uh, Martin, as I suggested before, um, we wouldn't know where to start counting, maybe along with John and Kadar, too, the numbers of hours of calls and writing and working on uh, different uh, uh innovative ideas, bringing them forward. Um, But you've been through a lot of them. And uh, incredibly, sometimes I used to feel, boy, did you hold to these 90-day cycles. Um, There were some principles uh, that were part of the work and have been part of the work that are kind of ironclad. And I thought maybe you could start off by telling us why that ironclad process (laughs) uh, came to be and um, how that's worked out. Thanks, Lindsay. Madge, I'd love to. So about 10 years ago um, or a little bit more, we started to think about some of the incredible results that we were getting from the work that IHI was doing. And we did a lot of these sort of early innovations in a program um, called Pursuing Perfection that was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant at the time. And we had an incredible group of organizations we were working with. We also had some of the best thinkers in healthcare, and we had no end to a list of challenges. And those thinkers would get together. They would know, they would come up with ideas. They were able to test them in an organization. So they had the forum, right? Um, but what what they realized, as uh, what we realized really as this program was coming to a close, was we had great ideas. We were able to make changes. But ironically, one of the things we lear- worked a lot on, reliability, we lacked in our process. 
So we never quite knew when the group that got together to work on these challenges was going to have a new idea that was really going to take hold, that would work strongly in an organization and move forward. And so we began to look at creating an innovation team with within IHI, and we started with a group of, a small group of individuals who worked um, on that Pursuing Perfection project. John and I were fortunate enough to be part of the the first four people who were thinking about how to create the IHI innovation process. And by looking at a lot of the work that Procter & Gamble did and other organizations that were really strong in innovation, we realized we were missing some things. So we, we usually did have a challenging question, but they would pop up periodically based on what we were working on. We weren't looking to the future to say, what challenge do we want to continuously pursue? We had a couple organizations we worked on, but we realized most strong innovation processes had a really strong network of innovators, and they had a a variety of methods that they were able to use with those innovators to move forward. They almost always had a specific timeline, and in our case, we chose 90 days. So we based 90 days on a few things. One, we thought that gives us four opportunities a year to pursue um, cycles. We realized that for IHI, it was appropriate that if we moved three months forward with a project and it didn't go somewhere, that wasn't going to be detrimental to the organization as a whole. So it it afforded us enough opportunity to fail that it wouldn't damage the organization, but at the same time, it gave us plenty of opportunities to be successful. And we held tight to that timeline and said at the end of those 90 days, a set of recommendations had to go to senior leadership at the time. And for the first, for the first actually few years, and John can attest to this, we, um, and even now, I, we never, um, deviated from those 90 days. So the 90 days created a sense of pace. It meant that the leaders working on projects were all starting at the same time and could get a sense of, am I progressing at the right pace? It enabled us to work together across projects that we launched at the start of 90 days. And very importantly, it let the IHI larger team, the team who would be moving forward to think about broader pilot testing, how to think about it in relation to the business, what other organizations might be interested. It gave a sense of predictability to that component. It let us know we knew at the end of those 90 days, we would say for the five projects that we chartered, either we're going to move forward with this work we're going to hold on it, or we think we need another 90 days to do further testing. So let me walk you through what the 90 days looks like. We broke it into five components over time. The first is really, what is the question? So can we pose and refine a question to be answered? And we spend a lot of time getting the question right. So we need a question that can be laid out and appropriately answered in 90 days. It may be part of a broader theme, but we want to focus on that. And then we move into a scanning phase. So we dive into probably 30 days of literature review, interviews, finding exemplars, looking for anomalies, really diving in and trying to identify what has happened in the field before, what's new, where are gaps, and where are we starting to see some synergies, some things that multiple people are saying are experts. And that leads us to the next phase, which is beginning to build a theory. We begin to identify the core principles um, and underlying theories. So we may look at a whole variety of organizations that are doing something similar, and we pull out the core concepts that we can knit together to say, 
this is what we think the uh, basis of a further innovation would be. We then really developed this new concept. We begin to do some testing on it, some really early alpha testing with one or two groups. We go back, we check if the theory is holding. If not, we refine, we work again. And that moves us into the sort of last phase of actually beginning to take the idea and put it into place in one or more settings to see if the new concept can begin to lead to an improvement. And that is, uh, that is a quick 90 days. It happens always as fast um, as it feels, but the pace enables us to, one, set questions that are appropriate to answer, two, it enables us to link together projects that move forward, and three, it gives us this opportunity to try new ideas, to sort of pursue things that are on the edge without putting all of our eggs in that one basket for over a year and having an outcome that we may or may not have as much confidence in. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, I wonder, would you be able to mention um, some things that maybe, um, I don't know, we, we talk about the word failure, but that can encompass and that can maybe be a somewhat harsh notion for things that we decide, okay, we're going to put this down for now, or maybe the timing isn't right. Um, so we don't just glow here with uh, things that panned out because sure. uh, um, there there have definitely been some things that just sort of stalled at some point. Yeah, go Absolutely. ahead. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. let me give you one example that always comes to mind. Early in the process, we started looking at the business case for quality. Um, and what we realized is we wanted to begin to tie um, pulling out expenses into the quality component. So not looking at revenue enhancement, but looking at ways that organizations were decreasing um, the amount that they were spending and um, in doing so, maybe changing their business models, focusing more on margin than just on revenue. And when we did this, the market was fantastic. Um, so try as we might, we looked and looked, we had a really great team who worked on building the theory. We had really strong confidence in it that we wanted to pursue it. And yet we could not find, you know, the five to seven organizations that we needed to test the theory. And so what we did was we, we put it on hold. So we went through it. We reviewed with our senior team. Everyone felt confident and we said, you know, the market's just not quite ready Um, And we need to do some building of will and market to get ready, or we need to wait for circumstance to change. Well, about 18 months later, circumstances unfortunately did change. The economy took a major turn in the U.S., and there became a real need to focus on how do we drive out waste. And in that moment, we knew we had uh, a strong concept that was ready to put into testing. So we pulled it back out. We had the discipline process of having the entire work summarized, written up, and tools ready to go. We did a review and a refresh, and we were able to pull those organizations in and begin testing. So part of what we need to know is both, do we have something that will work, and is it ready, or can we find those on the edge who are willing to do the testing of it? And sometimes that can be a bit of a timing game where you know you want to wait Um, keep it on the shelf, and then be ready to jump when you find the right opportunity to do so. Okay. Interesting example. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to turn now to John Whittington. 
And um, <clears throat> when we were uh, planning uh, today's program, uh, we realized, perhaps not surprisingly, that John, a lot of the stuff that John's been involved in lately really has to do with thinking a little more long term and thinking towards the future and digging in, even if it sometimes seems like big leaps um, in the midst of a morass of other things going on. And I, I think that was kind of my question uh, to you, John. Uh, it, it seems like it would be very easy to be really caught up in everything that seems so overwhelming in, and pressing, and yet you were part of uh, thinking about the triple aim, first introduced in 2008, and more recently about uh, looking at our newer and more explicit focus on health equity. So talk to us about these two pushes and uh, where they've come from and where they're at right now. Thanks. Great, Madge. Be glad to do that. Um, one comment I'd make is that when I think about these uh, pieces, the big pieces of work that we've worked on, like the triple aim, and oh, by the way, just to put a context there too, uh, when Lindsay mentions the 90-day cycles, you might think, oh, just 90 days? Within the triple aim, there are actually 30 or more. I lost track, actually. 90-day cycles of energy and effort over many, many years, obviously, put into that particular topic. So sometimes we stick with the topic for a long time, just keep working on various aspects of it. Um, the thing I'd say, too, is that the triple aim and the health e- and the newer health equity work that we're doing is, to me, not one, not two pushes, but kind of one long push. It's been, we've been at it a long time. And if someone loves to read, I suggest you sit down with the original triple aim health affairs paper from 2008, then pull the Milbank quarterly paper uh, that was written in 2015. And then lastly, you take the IHI health equity paper that we published in 2016. That's 25,000 pages, uh, 25,000 words. And actually, you'll see a continuum. It's actually a whole. It, there is, it isn't actually like separate items. It's actually one whole thing. In fact, the last line of the... Uh, of the health equity paper is the last line of the health equity paper is the triple aim is not achieved until it's achieved for all. So we look at that as a continuum. Now going back to the real question, it's how do you look, how do you create this kind of thing? How do you, how does this actually happen? I mean, the triple aim was created out of the idea that we needed a broader approach beyond excellent site specific care. I.e. if every one of us, I'm a family doc, if I did a great job, Cater does a great job, Although everybody does a great job, we'll have great care. And the answer is no, we won't. Then we'll accomplish a triple aim. And no, we won't. We had to have a systems perspective. That was sort of the push on it. And then the recent push on equity is a recognition that, as I said, that the triple aim will not be achieved until it's achieved for all. And, you know, it was interesting to note that early in the days of the triple aim, whenever I would be outside the U.S., Everyone would talk, they'd always talk about equity. When I was in the U.S., we didn't talk about it so much. So even in the early days of the triple aim, I saw the concept of equity, but I didn't see it as much in the U.S. You know, one of the things, too, I want to diverge for a second and just say innovation, you know, and and just to say, you know, whenever we give these kind of talks, uh, life always looks better in PowerPoint. You know, you see it, oh, it looks smooth and simple and it's going great. But in reality, it's never like that. Uh, Innovation in my mind is not innovation until it's tried and used. A great idea sitting on a shelf is shelfware and not innovation as long as it just sits there. And the idea of the AAA was rejected at first. It could have been shelfware. Uh, careers were put on the line on this one. 
Uh, it was persistence over time and, and also the right environment. I've seen persistence over time fail sometimes. Like Lindsay said earlier about the business case, we were working hard, but we're getting the uptake. And then the environment changes, and all of a sudden things happen, and you, know, you make some, you know, you make some breakthrough. And then, you know, thinking about, again, sort of the bookend of the original idea of the triple aim, and now uh, health equity has always been part of the triple aim. It's not a fourth aim. How can, how can you achieve uh, the triple aim for all unless you really are working on health equity? So, so now, in the work that we're doing on uh, health equity, and I would put a plug in to say, download the white paper. It's a good paper, and I think you'll think it's a good one for organizations. And now we face a new challenge with health equity. Most organizations do not see health equity as a main focus of their organization's self-interest. There's a lot of things going on. They struggle to see the business model. Few regulations push them to work on it. Uh, but that was the stuff we faced in the early days of the AAA, and that's nothing new. Time will tell on our work on health equity, but we are hopeful, again, that as we work on the content, as we work with organizations, which we are, we're actively working with organizations right now, to actually make this stuff come alive, to have them apply it in the organizations, see what we learn. We're gaining knowledge that way. And at the same time, we hope to impact the wider environment, the society that we live in, the rules and regulations, the payment mechanisms, all of this stuff we need to make a difference on. And so as, as we look forward to where innovation needs to be, so as I think forward, it's like, okay, you focus on triple M and health equity, this whole idea of population, you think forward, we have to look at, as we look forward, we have to think about the reality that we have in the U.S. Um, we have improvement. We are safer, maybe more effective and more efficient, but again, not for all. And, and when you look at our work in the U.S. as a system, and then compare us to other developed countries, there's good news and bad news. The good news is we continue to progress. The bad news is they progress faster than we are. And I think when I think about the big issue right now for us is um, it hurts. What hurts us is the uneven application uh, in our society that some are safer and some uh, have more efficient care and more effective care, but not all. And it's how do we achieve that? How do we actually think that through? What do we actually do? It's as if we were building a car, honestly, from a quality standpoint, that 80% of our cars come off the assembly line and they're fantastic. And 10 to 20% don't even have wheels on. And that's the kind of issues that we're faced with. That's the kind of issues that motivated us on the original triple aim, on the health equity work, to think about what are the system properties that we have as a, as a country? And where are the opportunities then to think not just about widgets of care, but the whole system and how it actually um, uh, works together? Mm -hmm. those, those are some of my thoughts. And, oh, and then the one thing I almost forgot, and I want to make a plea. Uh, guess what? Innovation's not over. Guess what? IHI is not the holder of all system thinking. IHI is not the holder of all quality improvement. We need help, and we'd love it if you send in ideas to us on areas that you think we should be focused on or areas that you're focused on. Some are, you know, just like Procter & Gamble, some of their best ideas come from outside of them, and then they just help to try to get those ideas uh, more visible to the world. So feel free to send me an email at jwhittington at ihi.org if you've got some ideas that you'd like to share with us. 
Thank you, Patch. Yeah, and thank you so much, John. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, get that uh, on the in the chat in just a second. John's email address, just in case you didn't get it, but it is ihi.org. Jay Whittington at ihi.org. And Vicky, uh, right across from me here in the studio, is pulling up the links from the 2008 Health Affairs, the Mill Bank, and also John was referring to a white paper on uh, pers- the pursuing equity. Uh, so we'll we'll get that uh, all those things uh, there. Um, okay, so uh, we're about to go to chat. Curious uh, what your questions are uh, about innovation. Uh, wondering if some of you who've joined are involved in your own innovation cycles. Uh, have any thoughts? If you had a chance to look at the IHI report on uh, the 10 innovations that we pulled out there, if you have any thoughts on that. So think about your comments. I'm just going to flip back to Kadar for a moment. Uh, Kadar, when times are unsettled and uncertain, such as right now, um, what do you think? How do we guard against becoming very risk-averse and almost less innovative? Um, You know, stick to your knitting kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, you know this is a question that uh, I think many organizations face, uh, and especially when when things get really tough or when budgets get constrained or otherwise. You know, the, the question for me is if, is often, um, you know, do we want to do we want to push on a if the system that you're getting, you know, Paul Batalden's one of his at least a quote that's attributed to him: every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it's getting. So if you're operating in a system that's that's pressed hard, that's that's uh, sub-optimized by the current environment, that's that's stretched um, thin, um, and if if all you're doing is exhorting that system to to work harder, work faster, you know, provide better, uh, without actually fundamental changing any of the fundamentals that support that system, uh, then that's a that's a recipe for more of the same. It's a recipe for Doing what you've always done, so you're going to get what you've always gotten, um, and it, it's in exactly those kinds of circumstances uh, that there's a fork in the road and leader, that leaders often face. And you know, it's a uh, do more of the same and do it more efficiently, the risk-averse path, as you described it, um, or invest, double down on uh, on new models of care, on new approaches to, to the challenges that you face today. Uh, on on investing in uh, some of those uh, uh, wilder, somewhat uh, uh, crazier ideas that some of your frontline staff are surfacing uh, that you haven't had an opportunity to pay attention to yet, uh, and 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 see where they take you. Um, and that so, I think that's the counsel that we often provide organizations that we're working with closely uh, around some of these uh, options. That you know, this is the time when when things get tight. It, it's uh you know there's that there's that saying around uh, constraints being the motherhood of invention. Well, that's that's extremely true. When things get tight, when the budgets get constrained and tight and, and shrink, uh, and when systems are pressed, uh, doing more of the same is not likely to get you uh, to a better level of performance. Doing different uh, is is likely to get you to a better place, and that's exactly when you need to invest in the kind of innovative thinking that we've been. We've been working on uh, here. I also just want to I want to reinforce something that John said. It, it, it's right. Life. He's he's right about this. Life looks better in PowerPoint, <laughs> uh, and it, it it this is a messy. The innovation process is a messy messy process, uh, and 
it does come down. There's an interesting, it's, it, it's not just a meritocracy of ideas. There's also determination, uh, diligence on the part of the uh, folks that are creating things. It, you know, there's that saying that about Edison that he failed a thousand, 10,000 times. I can't remember how it goes exactly, but I didn't just create a light bulb. I, I you know, failed 10,000 times to create a light bulb or something. Uh, but that type of determination, that type of dogged persistence uh, that uh, is a is a fundamental kind of attribute of our most successful changes. So just reinforcing that point that John was making earlier. Okay, thanks. Uh, Lindsay and John, do you want to add anything uh uh, to that question, uh, we'll, you'll, we'll be moving through some other ones as well, but feel free if either one of you want to. Okay. All right. We're going to keep going then. Uh, well, no, no, man, I'm giving Lindsay a smidgen in the line just to be rude. You're so uh, polite. Go ahead. <laughs> Go, John. <laughs> two comments I'd make. One is a real practical one, and just thinking about how to see the world differently. And I, would, I would recommend we put a link to the article that Kadart and team published in HBR recently. It was a new way to think in uncertain times about how to how would you get the front line to manage costs for you? So much in some of when things get when things get stressed in health systems, and I worked in a health system for many years, when things get stressed, we go back to our tried and true ways. Cut ten percent of the workforce, this type of thing. And we've got to get more sophisticated. We have to start to think We've got to have some other alternatives, and we and we at ITI try to create practical alternatives. So there's a nice article about frontline care providers and how they can actually manage the quality and the safety and uh, simple ways to do it. It's a nice practical article, and so we should put a link to that. Okay. I think I'm going to say one other thing about when things get tough in unsettled times and uncertain times. We can't remember. I mean, Don Berwick said this when he went to CMS. He said, "I kept the patient in front of me at all times." Um, people are people are struggling on our watch. And we just got to remember that. And we, and yes, we have to worry about the self-interest of the organization. We always do. We got to keep it afloat. But we have to remind ourselves, we, which certainly as clinicians, we think this way, but as administrators and others, we have to think this way. It's, we've got this patient in front of us and how can we do the best for them? How can we do the best for the population? How can we manage our costs in a better way? It's sort of, for me, it, it is the keeping the triple aim then really in front of me as it applies to society and individual. Thanks, John. Okay. All right. Questions are coming in. Don't be shy. Uh, We'd love to, you know, John uh, J. Whittington at IHI.org. I can send him ideas, but uh, feel free to uh, tease him up now. Um, One question I think we're interested in, throughout this show is what areas of work uh, right now do you think are badly in need of innovation? Um, so a question from Saskatoon, uh, the Health Quality Council there, and they're setting in motion a 90-day R&D approach. And maybe, Lindsay, I'll ask you this. They're curious about what lessons uh, we've learned here in terms of the team complement, uh, amount of people who get al- allocated to do the work, does it tend to be relatively static or does it shift with each cycle? Uh, Lindsay, how about you f- start off with that sure. one? Sure, Madge. I think that um, every project needs to be looked at differently. Um, so there is some shifting of resources based on what the project is. Uh, the way we initially thought of it was there was always a lead. There was always one person from the innovation team who was responsible for that project and they had about 30% of their time dedicated 
And then we, we looked at others on the team to be able to help that person. So sometimes formally say, you know, I'm going to need a helper. And over time, that, that could have been another lead or that could have been a research assistant. Um, but it was really the responsibility. That, that was as far as the resourcing went um, from the innovation team. It became the responsibility of the innovation lead to say, what is the complement of people that I need around me to be successful on this project? And the way I always thought about that were, who, who's been thinking about this work before? Who do I want to bring on board? Who do I want to ask questions of? And you learn some of that from research. Um, you learn some of that by asking questions. You learn some of that um, from introduction to your colleagues. So we always tried to surround ourselves with a team, either officially or unofficially, of people who had been thinking about the work um, before and for a while. And so for some projects, y- you might be okay with yourself and an RA and, and that would be right, or even just yourself. And for others, you would try to say, well, I, I think I need a strong economist and I think I need someone who's been thinking about healthcare finance and I need, you know, a, a practitioner at the point of care in an ICU. And so you would go about to construct those individuals. And for IHI, a lot of that was um, people donating their time, people, us calling and saying, we're trying to solve this problem. Might you be available periodically to work on this with us? And for these persistent challenges that people are so dedicated to working on, we um, have found that people are very um, happy to often say yes and be part of finding a group that will dive into a solution. Thank you very much. Okay, and go Matt, ahead. Kedar, I just would, I just want to add one thing, which is that we do have a starter, you know, as I chatted in here, we do have a starter kind of model that I think, Lindsay, you were kind of re- referencing. But the basic kind of model that we have is we source, a, you know, a, a senior person, a lead uh, all three of the folks on the call right now, uh, Lindsay, John, and myself, were in that category of, of a lead, and we spent about a third of our time uh, uh, dedicated to working on a particular question or a topic over the 90-day period. And then we'd be accompanied by a, a research assistant or associate who would who would spend half their time um, committed to the project. So that's sort of the starting allocations that we would we would place into the work, uh, and then we would add in additional faculty as needed, uh, you know, depending on the nature of the project. So there was some flexibility there in how we would uh, uh, modify the scope of the project over time. Okay, thanks. I see that um, we have a comment about technology, um, and um, that made me think a little bit about electronic health records, which I guess could be classified as major innovation, uh, also introducer of many headaches. And uh, um, what le- what lessons do you think that we're learning about uh, innovations of that scale and scope as technology tends to be, tends to sort of throw everything into a whole different uh, frame almost? And I don't know if that's too big a question to tackle, uh, but it strikes me that there's an enormous amount of innovation going on right now uh, in terms of also, in addition to the EHR, a lot of smart technologies um, to, at some level, make healthcare more efficient and more personalized, that kind of thing. Any thoughts about um, the EHR and technology more broadly? 
Well, Madge, I'm, I'm happy to yeah. get started, and others mm-hmm. can jump in. But uh, so I, I think of I think of there's there's a there's a there are different families of healthcare innovation in some senses, and there's a, a, a whole a group of innovation activities that have focused around around technology, around the development of new uh, information systems or services that would support the delivery of care, um, as well as new uh, communication strategies, new uh, real, uh, you know, uh, product-based technologies that would support things. Uh, there's a second family which is about business model innovation. A lot of what the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid innovation, the CMMI uh, effort over the last uh, five to seven years has been doing has been experimenting with business models, bundled payments, uh, CPC Plus. You know, the various different strategies uh, to to pay differently in service of producing better outcomes. And then a third category, which is you might call either uh, delivery innovation or uh, or, or uh, process innovation, uh, which is really about you know arranging the elements of care, the delivery system elements of care, so that you're producing better outcomes as a result of the care that you're delivering. Uh, and so those are so again you know technology-based innovations, business model innovations, and then delivery system or or care delivery innovations. Uh, a rough categorization of different uh, 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 ways of thinking about a rough taxonomy. Uh, not to say that that's perfect and there's probably exceptions and things that cross over, but just as a, a starting sort of a, approach to thinking about the taxonomy of innovation uh, in healthcare, uh, I, that may be useful. Our, our work has largely concentrated on that third category in the, in the delivery system design and approaches to to changing the way that we organize care and the processes that we use to support care. It does touch in, I, I would say, on uh, payment model innovation as well as technology-based innovation. Largely, our effort has been concentrated, however, in the delivery system side. There's absolutely no question that all three of these kind of come together uh, to produce the change that we hope to see. So as we go about doing our work, you know, we're working right now on a project, for example, around improving care for older adults in the country. And we've sort of developed a care model around uh, four major elements of age-friendly health systems, uh, which involves understanding what matters to patients, a real focus on medications, polypharmacy, uh, an approach to mentation, uh, cognitive status, as well as an approach to mobility for older adults. And, And those four things need to be supported by both payment models that would allow for us to take better care of older adults, as well as information systems that would support the actualization of those four, what we call the four M's, you know, what matters, medications, meditation, mobility, uh, in every practice environment in the, in the health system. And so we're, we're working with information system folks and, and uh, starting to think through the business model and payment models, uh, uh, payment model innovators, if you will, to help us uh, derive the best solutions to support this care model uh, innovation. So that's how I just to, you know think about it as well as relate the three together to produce the outcome that we're hoping for. Okay, thanks a lot, Kadar. John, I want to ask you what areas um, do you think are begging for innovation right now? Um, you know, uh, we're, we you've talked a lot about how the triple aim and equity are you know intertwined. Um, and uh, perhaps there are some other big areas within that, too, uh, quite connected. But um, what would you uh, tick off as some areas uh, very much in need of innovation? 
Well, I'll, I'll go back to, I'll, I'll give you an example on uh, what I think. Um, but it goes back to the question you asked Lindsay earlier, have we ever failed? And the answer is, oh yeah, we failed plenty of times at IHI. And, and one area that, that many of us have thought for a long time needs innovation um, is, the, is what we call outcomes and effectiveness. Um, we know, let me just put it this way. If you go into a doctor and the doctor says to you, you come in and see me and I say to you, we're going to do this treatment, and then you ask me, what's the number needed to treat? How many people will you have to treat before um, uh, you actually achieve some results? And typically, if you're lucky, the number is 5 or 10, but it might be 20 or 50 or maybe even 100 people. And so we need to provide better care at the individual level. Unless the doctor says to you the number needed to treat is one, which means every person who gets this, and we know who to choose for this, will benefit, then we have a lot of improvement to do at that individual level. You know, we talk a lot about the genome these days and how we're going to have this prescriptive um, individualized care at that level. And, and someday we will, maybe, but we could do a whole lot more right now with the individual in front of us. And actually, one area that I think uh, is ripe for this is just the idea of how would we actually then simply take quality improvement and then enable the patient who's in front of us to use those same tools. Uh, one of my you know, family members has a significant problem with eczema, and they're running experiments on a constant basis. They're trying a variety of things. There is a me- they have a measurement strategy because they need to evaluate for themselves what really works uh, and how to actually customize their individual care. So, for right, so that's one example, I think, that, uh, of where we can um, make a difference is how do we actually take some of the stuff we know in quality improvement, et cetera, and transfer it to the individual so that they can have this, this individualized care that they want and need and should, and should have as opposed to the... Um, I'll just say sort of a population-based care, try to apply it at the individual level, but it's still too broad-based, so we can improve that some. One other comment I want to make, too, goes back to the technology thing, Madge, and, and it goes back to the single solution. So whenever someone approaches me and says, I have the solution for X in healthcare, I'm scared, I'm worried, because there's never a single solution. Kadar made a really good point, and I want to emphasize that, that there's never a specific technology solution, a business model solution, or a care delivery process solution that's going to solve the whole thing. It's a combination of all of those. Back to you, Mitch. Okay, thanks, John. We have a question. Mary's asking about um, involving bedside caregivers in the process, uh, in part to ensure that innovation is uh, sustainable. And I think the sustainability of a lot of changes uh, over time you know, becomes a big question uh, over the past few decades as well, sustaining gains, um, continuing to learn from the implementation uh, over time. Um, Lindsay, is that something, I know we can all talk to each of these things, but is that something that you might look at as uh, try to address in terms of uh, this engagement issue uh, of caregivers? Sure, sure. I'm, I'm happy to. So I think this is such a great question, Mary, and, and key to building your team um, who's working on a project should be a group um, that would need to use the, the innovation that you're working on. So the end user needs to be a big part, um, be, it, be it patients, be it the actual care deliverer, of working on creating that innovation. 
Um, so I, I think there's two things that are going on. One is how do we make sure that we're not creating in a bubble? And that's where the piece of actually testing, knowing that you have um, a couple individuals or a group or a location in a healthcare center where you're doing the testing, this early alpha and beta testing is really, really important. Um, and without that testing, you are just creating ideas. They're not actually becoming innovations because they're not getting put into place. So I think that's very important. Then there becomes this sort of sustainability question, and that is when do we take what we've created and put it in place, and how does it go from being the new to just the way we do work? Um, and that's really the goal with an innovation, that we, in the beginning, it comes in, it's new, it's exciting, but it needs to become embedded in the new way of doing work so that in a year or two, no one looks and says, oh, look at this innovative thing that we're doing in this ward. It should be, look at how we deliver ongoing care in this ward or this hospital. And so that means that we get engagement from a broader group than just the group who worked on the innovation. That means that we basically go and use quality improvement methodology to take this innovation, what's worked, what we've seen go well, and then work to embed it and spread it throughout the organization so it becomes the new way we do business rather than the anomaly in one location. Okay, thank you. I'm going to stick with you for a second because I think this might be something you could address as well. Uh, we're back to Saskatoon asking about scoping and particularly your initial question. Uh, you know, how do you decide uh, if it's, is it a good thing if it's very broad or do you need to narrow it? And uh, maybe there are some examples of, of, of kind of two different types of questions. So I think the first thing to the question is never develop it on your own. Um, in isolation. So always look at who the end user is um, and what they are looking for because especially if you have an innovation team, it can become easy for and an unintentionally easy for the innovator to get a little bit separated based on something they found from what the person who initially asked the question is, is interested in. Um, so that's the first piece. The second is have someone that you can work on the question with I I feel like, Kater, you and I have spent sometimes months going back and forth trying to say, what is it that we really want to know? What is the question we're trying to answer? And there's a few simple things you can do. So one is to say, what really is new? What is the new we're trying to create? Um, the second is, what value do we, our organization, have to add that's different than what's done before? So... Others have great ideas, have made huge improvements, and sometimes what we need to do is is use what we know from improvement methodology and apply it to our organizations. And other times, there's um, a unique aspect. So IHI always says, what are we going to add to this that no one has added before? So what is our unique aspect? Um, and then go back and forth to try to identify the question. I think at times, They're really broad. So, John, when we started thinking about the triple aim, I think the the question was, what would a model of population health look like in the United States? That's really broad. Um, And once we began to get a handle on that, the questions became more and more specific, as John mentioned, those 30 cycles. Okay. Thank you. Match. Yeah, go. Uh, Mm -hmm. Comments. There's a couple comments I'd make, too, about broad versus narrow. 
one of the strategies of your, of having a 90-day cycle is that it's a risk mitigation strategy for the organization. Instead of betting the farm on a project that you're going to work on for the next five years, you may have a project which you think is going to take a substantial period of time, a year or two years, but you're going to chunk it into 90-day cycles. And then, you can, and then each 90-day cycle, you're going to ask the question, are we making progress and is this worthwhile? So that even sometimes when you have a broad question and you're still not sure you want to take it on, you, you begin the process and you see what kind of progress you can make in 90 days. If you make what you think is this enough for progress in that 90 days, you can take it to another 90 days. Each 90 days stands alone. And at any given time, you could actually finally decide, this is a great idea, but the time wasn't right or we didn't have the resources and we're going to call it quits. And again, what you're doing is you're conserving resources as opposed to plowing ahead forever. And I think that's really an important aspect of this process. We do use it that way to say sometimes enough's enough. We're just not making the progress we need. We're not going to continue to invest just because we started on this path. Maybe we'll pick it up another day later. And again, we always write about the project so that the, what we've worked on in that 90 days is available for us later on. So that's just something about this overall process and, and how it works for an organization. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right, John, the other John here, John Gothier, uh, just take a moment here and then we'll do some wrapping up. Go ahead, John. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, Innovation is obviously an important part of improving healthcare, but but taking care of the folks in your organization who are responsible for executing on those innovations, as well as everyday quality and safety, can be just as important. Um, and that's why IHI is uh, proud to offer Finding and Creating Joy in Work, which is a new seminar uh, starting on March in March of 2018, a 12-week virtual course that will share with you and your colleagues proven methods to create a positive work environment, uh, one that fosters meaning, equity, and ensures the commitment to delivering high-quality care, even in stressful times. This course is great for leaders, managers, or anyone in your system responsible for outcomes in quality, safety, or patient staff satisfaction. It will help your staff recognize the value of increasing joy in your work and uh, at your organization and identify some key leadership behaviors to raise staff engagement and improve joy in work. We'll also provide you with a framework to identify and test two changes to increase joy in work and, uh, and the measures that help track that improvement. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, we'll invite you to check out uh, IHI.org, uh, Joy in Work. Thank you so much, John Gauthier. All right, let's go around the horn and uh, wrap up here. Uh, John Whittington, let's start with you. Um, what are you working on right now? I'll put you right on the spot <laughs> in terms of innovation. <laughs> Okay, right now we're actually looking at data um, for the last 10 years of, uh, that's around the triple aim. So how are we doing on per capita spend? How are we doing on the experience? And how are we doing um, on the health of the population? We're focused on, for this particular moment in time, we're focused on the U.S. and we want to actually share our insights then on what kind of progress or lack of progress we've made over the last 10 years on the triple aim. Okay. All right. Very, very good. Well, John, thank you very much uh, for being part of all this work and for uh, taking some time out uh, to talk about it on WIH. I really appreciate it. Uh, Lindsay, uh, you're, uh, people may not realize this, but you're way over uh, in, in, across the pond in, in uh, Europe right now. Um, what are some of the things, though, that are on your mind that you're thinking about in this innovation space? Two things that I'm really focused on right now, Madge. One is thinking a lot about mental health um, and safety. So safety for patients, caregivers, and thinking about the differences both 
um, in an inpatient setting and then community setting and how we are able to take what we've learned or look to create a new um, and apply it to mental health. The second is really, um, I think my time in Europe has led me to, to go back to thinking a lot about um, simplicity and health. Uh, so how do we uh, begin to shift mindsets, especially in particular parts of the United States where care is really overused to focus much more so on um, health upstream. Mm, okay, very important. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. I know it's evening for you, so really, really appreciate uh, your being a part of this. You, of course, had to be Always part. Always glad to be here, Matt. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. Terrific. And Kadar, uh, you mentioned the age-friendly uh, uh, health system initiative, uh, looking at care for older individuals. Uh, anything else you want to highlight uh, that's kind of top of mind for you right now? Well, thank you, Madge. There, there's two challenges that I'd say that are that we're focused on, that I'm focused on uh, right now, that I think are some of the biggest challenges that we have in healthcare. One is about scale, getting what we know to everyone who needs it. Um, and there's a lot of work that we're doing right now on thinking about uh, better models of scaling and spreading change. And the other is value. Uh, John mentioned it earlier. We're really thinking, trying to think differently about value. It's been the province of the business side of the health system and and, you know, officialdom, if you will, in health systems. And our thinking is trying to turn that on its head. You know, what if we enabled, just as we did with patient safety and, and timeliness and patient-centeredness in the past, what if we enabled the people in the process, the people at the front lines, uh, caregivers, patients, families alike, with the knowledge about cost and, and cost uh, processes, uh, could we have a different outcome? And we're finding in early-stage testing that the answer to that question is yes. Very Thanks interesting. Okay. John Whittington, Lindsay Martin, Kedar Mate, thank you, uh, all three of you, for being part of today's program. And thank you, audience. And uh, this uh, program will land uh, as a recording on an archive page on IHI.org and also on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts uh, all by tomorrow morning. So hope that uh, you go in search of that and the resources again and also tell others about it. Next up on WIHI on November 21st. Uh, on a Tuesday, because uh, Thursday that week is Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to look at uh, kind of a intense subject, but one where, you know, there is light also at the end of the tunnel. When patients feel as powerless as hostages, we're going to pick up on a provocative article that Len Berry uh, has written along with Kadar and some other co-authors uh, in uh, Mayo Clinic Proceedings, and uh, we hope you'll tune in for that. A reminder, you can download the chat and all our resources when you get off uh, the WebEx today. You'll be prompted to do so, and as John Gothier said earlier, please fill out the brief uh, survey that uh, pops up as well so we can know how we did uh, for you today. Any questions whatsoever, anything lingering, uh, or you're not sure where to find something, please email info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make WIHI possible. John Gothier, Matt Morris, Vicki Minden, Haley Ladd, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case, Val Weber, Mina Hadley, and Kiki Yee. And it's my privilege to host this program that remains about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for joining. Good day, everyone.